0: Welcome to Planetary Health First, Mars Next. It is going to be an amazing journey today. Hope you're ready for liftoff. We are live now. Well, this is an awesome Thursday. This is Planetary Health First, Mars Next. I'm Michael Mann. I'm the host. I'm also the managing director, Santi, And we have an amazing special guest today, tonight, this afternoon, Dr. Ryan Paul. And Dr. Ryan Paul, can you just give us a little background of who you are and, and why this is so important for our viewer, our listeners
1: to hear you? Hey Michael, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always a, an honor to be able to get on with folks that share uh, share the same worldview, have like minds and be able to discuss important topics. So I'm always always thrilled to be a part of these types of conversations. Um, So, you know, as you said, Michael, my name is Dr. Ryan Paul. I am an infectious disease and pharmaceutical epidemiologist. Um, I am the CEO of Holden Fitzgerald Globally. We are a global public health practice that specializes in immediate impact solutions and helping global public health initiatives become self-sustaining. I'm also the founder and CEO of a couple organizations in the United States. One is called Well Life and then Well Life Recovery, which is the mental and behavioral health division of Well Life. Well Life is a pharmaceutical and pharmacy management firm uh, that specializes in working with federally qualified health centers and community health centers to serve vulnerable and marginalized populations. Um, I think I'll leave it at that because there's going to be, I think, a lot of conversation where we're going to get into a little bit more intimate detail about what my background is and how I found myself um, in the world that I'm in today. So I'll jump it back to you, Michael. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. And
0: first, before we get too far along, I always thought I had cool shirts until you came on. I love that shirt. That's so cool. I love it. Um, so anyway, so anyway, we're our kind of our, our topic today that we're going to really dig deep in with your expertise is uh, up there on the board. People can see it if they're watching Unmasking Postmodern Colonialism. The role of foreign aid in global public health—that's a mouthful. So, do you want to just like unpack that
1: uh, before we get going? I think a good a good place to start is is that you know why is it the responsibility of a a person that looks like me to have this conversation? right? When at the end of the day that it is my forefathers, our forefathers um, that are responsible for colonialism and the damage that it's created over the last 500 years. Um, You know, as we talk about, as we we have a lot of conversations about anti-racism, as we have a conversation about inequity and general inequality in the United States, we have to have a conversation globally about what colonialism has done and how it has seeped into the healthcare system, not only in industrialized nations, but specifically in developing and emerging markets. And so when we talk about um, what it means to unmask postmodern colonialism, it is to uh, have a look at ourselves, primarily in the United States, and say, what are we doing and how are we misusing global public health efforts to ultimately recolonize healthcare systems throughout the, the world? And how can we combat that? And how is foreign aid really facilitating market making and a new type of colonialism, a new type of neoliberalism um, or neocolonialism uh, across the globe, primarily when you talk about not only developing and emerging markets, but in across the entire global south. Um, and so that's really what we want to talk about today is, you know, what what is my role in it? What, how do I see that view? Where do I where at what point did I have to take a look at where I was? a member of the healthcare community and I was extracting uh, from the healthcare system more than I was giving to it. Um, And at what point I made a determination that I was not going to live like that anymore. I wasn't gonna do business like that anymore. I wasn't going to have healthcare practice that looked like that anymore. Um, And that's really what inspired me to to really relaunch Holden Fitzgerald as a global public health practice and really maintain a mission that was specifically about really two things number one we don't participate in projects um, that have that that take foreign aid right so there is a a couple large international organizations that put out the billions of dollars for most projects in developing and emerging markets and we've said look if you're an organization that wants us to go and respond to a request for proposal or a bid with one of these institutions we're not going to participate in it because we don't believe that they accomplish what you actually believe that, that money is going to help you accomplish. And it's really two things. And it's really what we specialize in at Holden Fitzgerald, which is health system strengthening and capacity building. So those two things in and of itself, unfortunately are just buzzwords in global public health, right? Um, how do we strengthen the health system? That could be everything, anything from digital health to uh, education, uh, training, It could be it could be a million different things, but it's what what is it going to take to strengthen a health system in the developing and emerging uh, markets that we operate in? And how can we do that so that these institutions no longer have to continue to go back and write grants, continue to have to go back and and take this philanthropy, which, quite frankly, we'll talk about why it's not really philanthropy in a little bit. Um, And when they start to deploy that money and those resources they're actually doing themselves a disservice because they're actually building markets and enterprises uh, on behalf of north american institutions Um, they're building a eurocentric model that really doesn't uh, take into consideration that what's happening is is those institutions those european organizations those american organizations are quite frankly more concerned about their own national security than actually strengthening the health systems of organizations from Nigeria, to Cameroon, to Kenya, to the lower Antilles in the Caribbean, to the work that we do in Southeast Asia, that at the end of the day that there is an agenda that is nefarious, I believe, um, and we are not going to participate in it. Now that makes it difficult, right? But at the end of the day, we remove that from the equation so that we can really start to have a conversation about what does it look like to actually build circular economies to create uh, economic stability, to create upward mobility, and to create health systems that actually take care of themselves and grow so that the community in which those healthcare care serve are actually prospering um, and can actually have a level of autonomy that foreign aid, that international organizations don't allow for them to have. The second piece is capacity building. In general, it's a pretty it's a pretty simple principle, right? We are going to help you build capacity, right? A capacity to have more access to vaccinations, to create local manufacturing, to be able to access raw materials for gels, infusions, and injectables. Um, in the pharmaceutical supply chain, it could be capacity building as it relates to the way in which you're bringing talent into your healthcare system. But we always propose this Really simple question. If you've been taking foreign aid and international monies and then being forced to work with the institutions that those organizations tell you you have to work with, and you continue to do that over and over and over again, the only question I really have to propose in the beginning is, is how's that working out for you? And what we do know is, is that we have to continue to go back to that trough right? Which means we're not creating sustainability. We're not creating self-sufficiency. We're not helping with autonomy. And what we're doing is we're ultimately solidifying this idea that we're letting organizations that do not have our best interest in mind set up shop in our backyard. And so healthcare, just like it is in the United States is an extraction tool, not a giver, right? It's sick care, not healthcare. And if sick care has put the United States in a place where we have one of the most terrible infant mortality rates we have a absolutely disgusting rate of maternal mortality rate in uh, black women in the southern part of the united states where people are sending their children to school hungry right where we really don't have equality where ultimately we can't even deal with disparity because we don't have a mechanism to improve health outcomes for the for the have nots versus the haves, right? And so there's institutional issues. So why would we wanna take that very unequal system and deploy those resources in building new systems around the world, right? Why would we wanna take a broken system and give it to communities that can't pay for it in the first place and tell them that that's the solution? The answer is that it isn't. And I'll give you one example right off the bat before we get into these questions. When we first started this, I was having a conversation with a digital health company um, beyond Golden Fitzgerald, our global public health practice, and beyond Well Life and Well Life Recovery, which are our United States-only institutions for pharmacy management and the work that we do with not-for-profit hospitals and health centers. We also have a company called Elevore that develops uh, technology, right? But it's specifically there to develop technology in a way that's affordable, right, in developing nations, right? If you look at how expensive technology is here in the United States, you can't take those mechanisms and expect it to be supportive in those markets just from a currency exchange perspective. So we were having this conversation with an institution uh, that needed some help building a digital health tool. And they had a patient monitoring system. And that patient monitoring system, like with your iPhone, requires cobalt. And so we got into talking about cobalt in general and where that cobalt came from. And it just so happened that this institution wanted to deploy a digital health solution to give access to uh, infant care in the DRC. We'll come to find out the very cobalt that they're using in their patient monitoring system, along with what's in your iPhone, is being mined by the very children that they're trying to help improve healthcare. So what I suggested was, is that maybe what needs to happen is, is you need to stop purchasing cobalt from mines and from supply chains that are using child slave labor to give you cheap cobalt. So you solve that problem first before you think that you're going to create a digital health solution that is going to take care of the very child that you're exploiting to put cobalt in your materials in your mechanisms in your diagnostic tools specifically anyways so that that's the issue the issue is is that we have not and so what is that what 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 is that that is a European white man problem right and so if we as Descendants of European white men, and I'm a German Jew, so I can come and say, well, that's, you know, ancestrally, that's not my issue. But no, it's not because I've got French Canadian. I've got English. Right. My ancestors are colonialists. So if I, as the leader of a global public health practice, can't have a conversation with myself. That my ancestors are the problem and I was taught to be the problem then we're gonna end up creating healthcare systems in the rest of the world that are no different than the healthcare system that we struggle with in the United States, which is like an oil company, right? What do we do? We go in, we buy the land, we use our money to monopolize, and then we extract, we extract, we extract. And when there's nothing left, what do we do? We leave, right? That's why there's medical deserts all across America, right? Well, there's 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 no more money to be had, right? Reimbursement isn't good. Concierge medicine is going to work. Everybody's got a solution for it from, direct care to Medicare for all. But here's the thing is that even if as the richest country in the world, we decided that we were going to actually make healthcare a right and not a privilege because right now healthcare, we think is a privilege, not a right, right? Like because a health insurance system controls it and health insurance is expensive. Even if we believed that it was a, it, that healthcare was a utility and that everybody should have free healthcare no matter what, right? And there was equality in the way in which we accessed it, and we communally understood that just because I'm a billionaire doesn't mean that I get better healthcare than a person that's on the street. If we actually believed that, we would still have the problem that we were still raised to be ambitious. We were still raised to colonize. We were still raised to conquer. And we do not. We operate in a capitalistic, neoliberal, constitutional republic that does not take into consideration that the way in which we raise our children is to feel bad if they don't have more than someone. So if we are truly going to solve the problem, we have to change our society and the way in which we view. I don't feel bad today if someone has more than me. And quite frankly, if someone has less than me, I want to figure out how I can Create a level of equality, a level of opportunity that I have simply because I showed up white. And if I can't say that publicly, then the, the problem's not going to change. You know, I, I had a, it was a great uh, individual I had, had a conversation with about a year ago, and he said, racism isn't a black problem in America, it's a white problem, hmm. right? It's a white problem. Mm. It's a me problem. It's a me showing up and I'm uncomfortable because I'm the only white guy in the room problem. And then you have to ask the question, well, why is that the case? Well, for me, it's because I was a freshman in college before I had ever had a conversation with a black person. I mean, it's just that's just the reality. So like, if we can't have that honest conversation and say like how I was completely removed from that And quite frankly, to top it all off my specific situation, it was hidden from me that I was Jewish until I was 23 years old, Mm. right? So capitalism, constitutional republicanism, that's what that does, right? That, That says you have to be a certain way, you need to perform a certain way, you need to be ambitious and your value is based on all of those things. It isn't based on the fact that you have worth because you are a human and that you have breath in your lungs. So we go into global public health saying if we can recognize that, then I can not only create equality across our consulting firm, so that everybody has a majority pin, you know has a majority uh, say in what we do, that they have equity in what we do, from the southernmost part of the Caribbean, into Latin America, all the way to Southeast Asia, because I can tell you that I do, and people will say this. I have the luxury of being an idealist, it's true. But I can also acknowledge that, right? Like I know that, like if people hear this and they're like, "This guy's a real jerk," I don't care. This is why, because as we go through these questions, and let's start because I'm in it. Like I told you, I get on a, I get on a, I get on a rant, Michael. <laughs> but here, but here, no, but here's the here's the point. The point is, is that somebody has to say this shit. Yeah because it's not a conversation that is had in the elitist global public health model because everybody's, look, there's brilliant people working for, I mean, I'm not, even gonna, I'm not even gonna say the names because people will say, think that I'm criticizing. It is mm-hmm. not the people that are working for those institutions I, and there are big ones. I mean, I could list all mm-hmm. the big guys. They're, they're brilliant people doing brilliant work, doing saving lives. Mm -hmm. But the system that they're working for, they are giving their labor and they are giving their blood, sweat and tears and they're sharing their knowledge with institutions that have sold their soul to Fortune 500 companies on Wall Street that are using their venture philanthropy to go push back into the internet. Here's the bottom line. There is one institution across the world that gets 95% of USAID's money. There's brilliant people working for them, but that doesn't make any sense. It's because if you look at the model for the largest donor in the United States and what they do, they do great things and they do brilliant things and they do research and development, public health surveillance, and they get vaccines in places where vaccines are not showing up and they get diagnostic tools and they build hospitals and health centers and make for more robust primary care. But what happens when they say the grant's done? Party is over. Mm -hmm. And the only one that wins are the large management consulting firms that got the contracts to, quote, unquote, do the health system strengthening and capacity building program. And they're the ones that make the millions of dollars. Right. So what do I need to do? Do I need to write a million dollar check to that institution so that they'll call me up and say, hey, we know that your team is absolutely capable. No, what we do is we say, look. We understand that we are going to have to provide in-kind advice, meaning we're going to have to do a lot of free work for these institutions up front to get them to a place where they can actually even pay us. Mm -hmm. But I have structured our organization to be so mission oriented that the people that work with us understand that there is a level of giving that happens way before there's any reward. Mm -hmm. Because for us, it's about doing exactly what we're doing. So let's let's jump into it. How conditions or expectations attached to foreign aid impact the decision-making processes and autonomy of recipient country? That's a great question, Michael. Thank you for asking <laughs> it. You're welcome. You said it better than I could ever. So I've said a lot. I basically answered all nine, 10 of these questions, right? In just the last, you know, last I guess, 15 minutes. But so conditions or expectations are attached to foreign aid and they impact the decision-making process. This is plain and simple as that, right? So if we're a player in the global public health space, whether you're a not-for-profit or a for-profit, you're the ones that get the work, right? So that what happens is, is that the knowledge that comes out of incredible institutions from Johns Hopkins to Harvard, they go, immediately go, and are picked off by either an incredibly um, huge international organization, which again, nothing wrong with those things, they're doing incredible work or they're going and working for one of the big three management consulting firms, right? Um, here's the problem. The problem is that makes for a very, a very small pot. And it means that now all of those organizations become relied upon, right, to execute anything that needs to happen in the, in the developing world. So the conditions or expectations that are attached are simply, we will give this to you, but you're going to have to do something for us right? And that could be, hey, um, well, there was a health, health authority in North Africa um, that we uh, were having a conversation with by we team working on a project with them. <laughs> and they said, we're really unhappy with our management consulting firm. What we've recognized is, is that although they are a bunch of really smart MBAs, they have no field experience, and they do not know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and I said, well, why did you hire them? And they said, well, unfortunately, the international institution that granted us the money to actually do what we're doing in this healthcare initiative said that we couldn't get the money unless we hired this firm and that that firm would be paid by that money to do the work.
2: Hmm.
1: That happens nine out of 10 times, right? So we're going to give you the money, but it's restricted. So right off the bat, what we do know is, is that it's not philanthropy. There is no charitable giving, right? So where does
0: does that conversation happen? I'd love to be the fly on the wall on that,
1: you know? Where does it happen? I mean, apparently it hasn't happened a lot until I started calling everyone. I mean, I had this incredible, no, but, beautiful- but I'm
0: saying, I'm saying like, obviously that's like the, like offline, like we give you the grant, but we want X, Y, Z consulting.
1: No, it's, it's, it's the- built in. It's, it's hundred percent built into RFPs and bids. and grant- Okay. Okay. So it's in the contract as a, yeah, it's, as a it's, it's contingent. I mean, it's okay. not always that way. I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's yeah. not always that way. Um, there's lots of money that goes out. That's unrestricted there. Like I said, there's incredible, incredible charitable organizations mm-hmm. that are both doing both public work and private work to be able to make four more robust programs. Um, So please don't think that I'm I'm generalizing as it relates to this happens 100 percent of the time. But what I'm suggesting is, is that what we do know is that when we get when somebody says we need your help. And then they come back and say, but I know exactly where they're going. It's it's that. So so the question that we always get is, is where do you get your funding? And I said, we get our funding from our clients, we charge them fees, or we, um, you know, or the suppliers, right? If we're we're developing supply chain or helping improve manufacturing or whatever it might be, you know, somebody will pay us, right? We are a for-profit consulting firm. Now, granted, um, we're about 75% less in fees than a lot of our global competition, but I don't even see them as competition because they're just playing in a different, they're just playing in a different pool. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those, those are upfront, right. People understand, right. Like, Hey, this is, this is restricted. This is who's going to manage this. This is X, Y, and Z. Um, and that's okay. Right. That's okay for the short term. Right. Um, a good friend of mine in the Caribbean, uh, brilliant professor, brilliant, um, biosecurity specialist said, we take what we can get. And sometimes you have to, mm-hmm. Right. Sometimes that means excluding Holden Fitzgerald. I mean, it is, it's is—it's more often than not that we just say, you know, there's, we would love to be able to help, but I mean, we're not going to go through this RFP process that ultimately we know we're not going to win, mm-hmm. right? We know who's going to win it. I mean, I know exactly who's going to win it in a lot of cases. I mean, like very specifically, not just, hey, it went into a hole. But that's really more of just how I've operated business. You know, that's how I've operated my business, right, is to say, I want to talk to the person that's going to actually sign off on this. And if the answer is you can't, then the answer is, well, then we can't participate and that's okay because there's a lot of great things that will happen without us. Right. And quite frankly with institutions that I don't even think are doing the right thing again, why? Because they have brilliant people working for them. I'm going to say that a lot along the way so that nobody accuses me of saying that there are, you know, when you get into some of the large management consulting firms, there's a hundred, there's a hundred percent people, working on projects they have no business working on. But, you know, what's interesting is, and I was having this conversation with our president and COO at Welllife, I said, the reason why is because they can execute, right? The reason reason why they are good at participating in these things is they understand execution, completely unqualified, right? To be able to create public health surveillance tools or the type of technology that's necessary to actually be adopted, right? I just wrote an article about You know, digital health, you know, great that there's um, usage, but is there impact, right? Um, And so, again, we have to ask some of these questions so that when we are building these tools, when we are creating assets or deploying resources for the institutions that work with us, our main goal is intellectual property ownership, right? We have an institution that we worked with in the past. We built a digital health tool for them so that they could support community health workers, but we built it for them. They own it. Now they can deploy that resource free for themselves and they can sell it to other institutions that need that resource. So they're creating a a channel of revenue for themselves that wouldn't normally exist, right? Because if they went out and got a grant for it, that grant is going to pay for a tool for another institution to either develop or own. And that will be a continuous revenue um, supply for someone that isn't the not-for-profit that is taking care of fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, it was you know uh, rural Nepal. We need to come up with a particular solution for that. And we want the not-for-profit that has engaged us to be able to own that solution so that they can actually have some success and some revenue generation that comes from it because it's going to be a really great tool. And we're going to do it and develop that technology in a way that's affordable and can be reproduced and duplicated so that other organizations within that kind of sphere of healthcare community can have success with it. it it's affordable, right? It's something they can have access to. It's, it's accessible. Um, we talk about healthcare access all the time, but is it really accessible? I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you from experience, I'm having these conversations on a daily basis. Um, and we just had a conversation about raw materials for infusion pharmacy. And the, and the question is we have no money to make it work. I said, okay, so how do we create a public-private partnership where we get a supplier, or a manufacturer in this particular country to partner with this uh, religious not-for-profit that provides a significant amount of health care for the people of this country where the institution owns it, right? And it's not just a hijacking, enterprising type of situation, right? Because we won't, again, we're not going to participate in it. I, I, will die. I always tell people, I will die on that hill and I will lose money on that hill, um, but I will... But, but, that, but that for me is, is what the legacy is, because at the end of the day, it's, you have that, that balance between I'm not trying to save anyone. I'm trying to make a point that my people are screwing other people over, and it's not okay, and I'm not going to participate in it. And so if I can sound the alarm and provide services that help these institutions have autonomy, then we're going to do that all day long, even if that means us um, giving up a significant amount of financial operational and clinical resources to get these things started so that we can see success because I am a firm believer that if we do the right thing, the rest, take, rest will always take care of itself. I have never been in a shitty situation and then done the right thing and it not work out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we have to apply that in global public health because it's, it's not just enterprising, right? It's not the business of healthcare. It's like, stop saying that. It's not the business of healthcare, there's no business in it right mm-hmm. like there isn't it's not really business it's it's a calling right you're dealing you know even if you think about why we, why we have physicians quitting why everybody wants to be an influencer everybody wants to be you know they start in their you know they start a podcast, you know not, no offense I mean, we do panels <laughs> and pod but you know these these brilliant practitioners start in podcasts and become consultants when they should be taking care of people, because their experiences is, is that I'm gonna get screwed if I work in, in this system, right? And so what, I would, what I'm simply suggesting is, is that capacity and health system strengthening does not happen externally, it happens internally. So if all of your resources are coming from an, an external source and have restrictions on them, and you're being told what to do and how to do it, you're losing context, you're, lo- you're losing cultural context, you're losing a lot of things.
0: I um, started a podcast just to
1: have people like you on my show to talk to. Yeah. And we do a monthly panel so that I can get on and try not to swear. and (laughs) (laughs) Or whatever the case may be. I I enjoy it. I do. Obviously I'm really passionate about this, but again, it's about an acknowledgement that, you know, I'm not, there's in and of myself, I cannot make impact.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My job is to find brilliant people across the globe that know what the hell they're doing and know what their communities need and have the ability to execute on the solutions for those needs and me be there to support that. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, are we, are, are we, yeah, we're paid. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if you look at a, you know, if you look at management consulting firms, they're paid like tax attorneys. Four hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars an hour, right? Yeah. Well, there's no there's no one in the developing world that can pay for that, so somebody has to pay for it. So then the question is, what's the exchange? Mm-hmm. What rights do they have over your community? Because if you can't afford the million bucks that this is going to make happen, and somebody else is taking care of that million bucks, I guarantee you that it's not a no strings attached.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Very rare that I see you know people just writing checks because it makes them feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. So altruism in many cases, altruism in the global public health space is unfortunately, it's quite self-serving. And so when I think about, you know, as a German Jew, and I think about the way in which we give sedaka, it's a, there's a, it's a release, right? Or if you're a Christian, the tithe, right? When you give, right, of, you know, let's say it's 10% or whatever it is, if you're giving to charity or you're giving to your church or your synagogue or your mosque, you release yourself from that. As soon as you let go of it, it is no longer yours. It is it is there to do a particular uh, work, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is not there for you to have to have a return on, right? The yeah. return does not come in dividend by way of some type of investment that you should expect something yeah. uh, from that from that that monetary investment. You you can't. Now, I have a, a good friend. His name's Doctor Mate, um, Doctor Dixie, my better half. Um, is it works in the mental health and mental and behavioral health space primary mental health addiction treatment specifically anyways dr gabramonte a lot of your viewers will know who the he is but he is a he's a uh, a brazilian pediatrician brilliant guy um and he says all the time he says there's no reason why healthcare practitioners can't be paid very well for what they do that's okay right within within the context of the need Ability to pay, all of those types of things. But there's a fine line between that and profit-driven motive, right? And there is a lot of industries where profit-driven motive is completely fine, right? I mean, the people that work for me, I mean, there's they want to make money, and they do, and some make incredible, you know, incredible amounts of money, and that's awesome. But the motive, right? The motive mm-hmm. where we where we stop ourselves is to search our hearts. And whether it's God or the universe or nothing, right? Just humanism to say, yeah, some of these things are wrong, and I'm 100% responsible for them. And I guess that for me, that's that's where that's that's where it hit, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's where that's where it made sense for me. That I am accountable. I am responsible. My people did this. And so I now have an obligation to support, be an ally of and empower others to be able to do what I believe is necessary to change the situation, right? And again, it's not about saving anyone. It's about recognizing that if the problem's over here and a lot of those people are my peeps, then I get, I get the right to stand in front of them and stand in that crowd and tell them they're wrong. Right. I don't, it's not my responsibility to go into cultures that are not my own in context that's not my own, insert myself in places that I have no business inserting myself. But I do have a right, you know, to to make this these problems stop. And again, in and of myself, I cannot other than to sound the alarm and then to work with my team, our team at Holden Fitzgerald to do the right thing. And I think it's really cool because when we go in with that motive, we, we understand, we, we, we see it. There's a level of empathy we hurt. And if you can't feel that pain, then you shouldn't show up and try to help them help people solve that problem.
0: So, so what do you do as an organization to make sure you get it right in these countries, these locales, um, I mean, I imagine you hire, you try to hire the people from the, what are you, what's the process? I'd love to know that. And I know that's
1: not on this, you know, we're kind of going off, but no, that's fine. We'll it, keep, we, can go, we can go with this. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, right? Um, we employ no one in the United States because Holden Fitzgerald does not do work in the United States. That's first.
0: Okay. Well, that makes, that makes a good starting point. Uh,
1: so second is, is that we have an employer record that has, um, 180 um, corporate entities and 180 countries, right? So what happens is if we have a long-term project, we're going to staff that project with locals through our employer of record. So all the contracts are gonna be directly with us, but at some point we're going to turn what we're helping build over. And so what part of that process is, is building building the correct, uh, bringing in the right talent locally um, to meet the needs, uh, and scope of work that's necessary with the understanding that when we exit stage left, what's happened is, is that we've helped that healthcare institution, that not-for-profit that's deploying resources for, it could be for humanitarian purposes, for outbreaks and epidemics, for drug supply chain. We've staffed that locally. And then what we have by the, by the time we've left, we've helped them build capacity so that they can then take on the staff that we have brought on, on their behalf, right? Mm -hmm. So we then transfer those folks into the care of the institution that we've worked with. Um, So that when, again, when we, when we say, Hey, it's, you know, it's our engagement is over, but here's the thing we've built something that you can Mm -hmm. afford that makes sense from a payroll perspective so that everything that we've done together doesn't just stop because we're not here anymore.
0: And it seems like you would be a, a great oasis, a, a, a beacon for these, uh, a drawing for the locals, Would just like word of mouth, would really want to be a place and environment where they're working at. I mean, just the way you're set up, the mission, the purpose, the vision, it's got to, I would imagine you know, I don't know how many years you've been at, you know, forgive me. I don't, yeah, I know you've done
1: multiple businesses. I don't know how many years. Well, Holden Fitzgerald has dip- been around for seven years. Okay. Um, it has not always been specifically a global public health practice. It was a holding company at one point. So I transitioned the asset company into something that can support what we do. Um, and that's really been, we've been really kind of full force doing this for about a year and a half. So we're still babies in this, mm-hmm. Um but what I will say is that if you look at our associate director pathway, those associate directors then come on to leadership roles. Um, so the, the director, the folks that are running the show, right, they have equity, right, in mm-hmm. what we're doing in the country that they're, they're overseeing. And they are local. They are local. They are native to that mm-hmm. country. Right. So if we're in Cameroon, our associate director, you know, the, the folks that are leading it, they actually have personal Financial, they have equity, meaning they everything that we do in that country that they oversee, they actually have corporate equity in Holden mm. Fitzgerald, right? So they're automatically getting equity in any project that we do in that country. Um, so as they, they help build that practice, it's theirs. They own it which is really cool. Wow.
0: So you really are like the international McDonald's, if you would like franchisees. I mean, that's a, it's, forgive yeah, me I mean, for using a capitalistic yeah. sort of point. Forgive me. That's probably, I should stop. Yeah, no, that's,
1: that's, that's fine. But no, so it is, it's twofold. It is number one, understanding that it's, it's my, you know, it's kind of like, it's Ryan's problem to fix up until here. And now I need somebody to take it all the way to the finish line because they are responsible, right, mm-hmm. for taking care of their people, right? And although there is brotherhood and sisterhood in it, there is a fine line, right? And we have to, we have to be careful with that. So mm-hmm. it's really about empowering um, our associate directors and those that are in management positions to build their own practice in the countries in which they exist. And then we help them employ their teams locally so that we can, again, uh, move away from that And let them operate uh, in an autonomous way uh, and be able to provide the support that's necessary so that they can have both personal success from a career perspective, but also so that they can deliver on the scope of work that they've committed to. I put
0: this last question up because I feel like you're kind of, you've already answered it, but if there's anything more you want to drive deeper, like what strategies can be implemented to promote local capacity building and sustainable development instead of perpetuating a cycle of dependency on foreign aid. I know you've addressed this, but if there's anything else you want to touch on that. Um,
1: Yeah. So, I mean, strategies to promote local capacity, investing in education and training particularly in our world local health professionals supporting the development of strong health systems and the ownership of those set systems locally right so that means the entire supply chain right durable medical equipment right if there's going to be a supply chain with that it needs to happen locally drug supply chain manufacturing can quite frankly it, it can it can happen locally right bringing in raw materials right what is happening is is that there needs to be a will the other part of the problem too is is that this is what colonialism does colonialism um, rewards the folks that aren't taking care of their people, right? So there's a disincentive for econ- local economic growth, right? That happens via corruption and all of those types of things. But quite frankly, if the U.S. government is willing to reward somebody that's killing their people, right, for the sake of the United States' national security, why aren't they willing to do that in the healthcare systems? Guess what? They do. They don't. They don't. I mean, that's happening on a regular basis. They're saying, "Look, we'll give you we'll give you what you need to do X, Y, and Z, but we need this." I mean, th- it's a tale as old as time, right? Mm-hmm. It's this may be a bit of a dramatic comparison, but it's the the enemy of my, the the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation, right? It's hey, we'll help you out because you're going to help us out, mm-hmm. and so I always draw back from. Right. Again, there's some incredible research and development trusts, um, even you know the WHO, World Bank, GAVI. I could give you a list of incredible organizations that are doing incredible work. What I would suggest is, is that the main strategy is how do we help build locally so that there is a circular economy. And that's really the main strategy we have to empower those local communities to do it themselves. Right. And so do I, do I get excited every time I see international monies come in and released to continental CDCs and other ministries of health and those ministries of health actually do what they say they are going to do with the money that they've been given in unrestricted ways to be able to build, the systems in a way that's necessary to train community health workers, to create more robust manufacturing, to be able to design and deliver global and public health systems, preparedness systems for neglected tropical disease. Um, there are parts of the world where people still don't have access to PEP and PrEP, right? And some of the highest rates of HIV transmission today, mm-hmm. and it's cheap. So there, some of it's market blocking, Right? So some of those things we just can't control. Right? I mean, there, there's no way. I, I I, tell you right off the bat, we actually had a an institution, I won't say the country, because I'm pretty sure this institution does this all the time, wanted me to give them $45,000 for a meeting. $48,000 and some change. I actually have a contract sitting on my computer. So, okay. All right. So, the question becomes, do I want the half a million to $2 million over the next three years that could come from me, essentially bribing people? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, I, I can't mm-hmm. do it. Now, and here's the unfortunate part, is, is that, that a lot of the large global organizations have the ability to do it in ways that completely protect them from making it look like it's exactly what it is. And they get that work Mm-hmm. And people get paid off, and yes, people get helped. There is a mm-hmm. level where people get helped as a result of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. the, the necessary evil in some cases. Uh, we don't have the capacity to do it. Again, we don't participate in in trying to influence a- anyone. It, it, it's not a matter of that. It's this is what we do. We can demonstrate in a certain way that we have the capacity, capability, or network to be able to help you do whatever it is that needs to be done Um, we do obviously as we have a very large pharmacy management business in the united states we do a lot of work in pharmacy consulting in non-us the non-us market um we're hiring a lot right now in eastern europe we're getting ready to partner with an organization to do some work in the ukraine we are building right now with a incredible organization in the African continent a fragility program so that we can deploy healthcare resources in the middle of war zones and armed conflict. I think that those types of things that are really niche, that's where we shine. Mm-hmm. So again, some of these things that are real big issues, we don't end up in. The, we're not going to end up in the middle of anyways.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But the number one strategy is, is how do we get folks to a place where they understand that they cannot create a circular economy and local autonomy if they continue to draw from resources that do not have their best interest in mind? And so that in and of itself, that is a very long, detailed conversation that can go a lot of different ways. Um, And people are offended, but they shouldn't be offended because I love these. I love, I love, I love global public health practitioners from all organizations. I think that the intent of their heart is good. They are brilliant. I'm talking about epidemiology, virology, immunology, microbiologists, public health surveillance, um, doctors of public health, financial gurus, operational and supply chain, brilliant people. Mm -hmm. There's just so many of them. And And I'm blessed to be able to be in contact with a lot of them all the time. But one thing that I want the commonality between all of those conversations Michael is I say these things all the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and no one disagrees with me I have I have yet to get I, I have had one person get off the phone and say yep your organization's not a good fit we're not going to come work for you one time I had 75 75 people reach out to us saying can we work for Holden Fitzgerald after our last panel mm. we we Based on one, one thing, when, I, when we were talking about AMR and empowering youth in Africa specifically, right? And this was our associate director, Dr. Franklin, brilliant young man, brilliant young man. And I just simply said, look, you wanna do something? Get after your government to keep it local, right? Like start building local. The problem that you had 20 years ago, you have today and it's not your country's fault it is it is, it is a byproduct of what we've built in colonialist societies for over 500 years
2: mm-hmm.
1: and again we have to we have to acknowledge that if we acknowledge that and it's acknowledged over and over again michael then we win we ultimately win that right because we speak truth to power right i mean look at the look at the debate that happened last night the crazy shit that was said. I grew up in a conservative right wing home, right? Messianic Jewish home. But the crazy shit that was said. And I'm thinking, dude, this is, it doesn't matter. Okay. Yes. I'm liberal 100%. But I wasn't always. I wasn't always. I was ahead of the young Republicans 20 years ago. <laughs> the, it's crazy, Michael. It blows my mind. Right. And then Nikki, Nikki Haley actually said something that was like super interesting about telling the truth. And I'm thinking, I mean, I don't even know. Like, I, that makes, I mean, some of this just doesn't even make sense. I can't even get my mind around it. But these are the decision makers. These are the, these, are the pow, these are the power brokers of the world. And they can't get their mind around science. They can't get their mind around medicine. They can't get their mind around the fact that the very money that they say is earmarked for people is going into the hands of corrupt, you know, corrupt models. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we're blaming overspending, right? That was what Nikki Haley said. He said, you know, if the Republicans asked for $7.8 billion worth of earmarks, the Democrats asked for $2.5 billion or $2.8 billion. So maybe we need to get an accountant in the White House to do the math. We need, to, we, need, we, need, we need somebody to do the math on global public health and international and foreign aid. And is it actually really helping or is it hurting? And I would suggest that more times than not, it is hurting because it is only providing short-term solutions very long-term societal problems that have been brought on by colonialist states. And so, again, that's what this conversation is about. It's about revealing uh, and getting people activated to be able to to say, you know what, Ryan's not wrong. Ryan maybe goes about it in a way that I wouldn't go about it. Fine. Totally fine. I only do it this way to get you to listen. By (laughs) you, I don't mean you, Michael. I mean the people that are going to watch this. It's just like, you know, I don't care what you call it we used to, you know, it's like wake up, like wake okay. up, open your eyes. Mm-hmm. It's not about being woke, although I want to be woke because that means I got my eyes open. I'm awake. I see what's happening. Right. And what you what the reality is, is that this is happening in global public health. Funds are being misappropriated. Big management consulting firms, biotech and pharma are, are benefiting from it, but they're giving nothing in return. They're extracting from already very, very, very low income and middle income countries that can't afford to have that extraction. And then on top of it, then on top of it, they are harming by by way of their extraction are harming the very people that they say they're trying to help. So I don't. there's just tons of questions. There's just tons of questions. And we got lots of time. So let's. Yeah. On. All right. Well,
0: and what uh, ways does the competition from foreign aid resources contribute to brain drain in the health sector of recipient countries? And how can this issue be mitigated? And I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, because it sounds like when you had one, just one um, open event, you had 75, you know, whatever referrals, like, I want to work for you. So I think
1: yeah, no, that's a good question. And actually I, I would, I have to address this because this is something that we're, again, we have to be careful is, is this isn't about brain. So the answer is that if you just look like, you know, and I always, I always tell our consultants, you know, we, if you take equity in the project, our ability to be able to compensate you and you have ownership of what you're building far exceeds anything that you would ultimately be rewarded in if you went to the institution that's actually funding this and going to work. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that, but that's the the reality. So if you just look at the epidemiological community, we like to sit around and talk about really smart things all day. And the one thing that I've always been critical about is that the conversation, the research, the white papers, the million citations Although, again, great work, and it's necessary, especially when you're talking about developing life-saving medications or systems that are ultimately going to warn us that something bad's about to happen. Most of it's not actionable. Most of the time, we are uh, pontificating about things that are uh, pontificating about problems that already have solutions for the sake of getting funding that ultimately allows us more time to create more problems. Um, and so what we do is, is that we get together and we talk about how smart we are. And I've just, I, that's just a critique in, in, in my world, brilliant people like to get together and be brilliant together. Smart people like to get together and be smart together. And although that's great, there is a level of it's time to, you know, it's time to take off the fancy clothes, put on the cargo shorts and the work boots and dig a ditch and stop talking about all of these things. That's difficult right to translate. So what happens in that is institutions come in and they do a lot of public health surveillance, they do a lot of surveying, they suck a lot of data, they monetize all of that information in the industrialized world. And none of that money goes back to where that information actually came from. So I think that that's really kind of what that question is addressing is, when you talk about brain drain is, You go to a lot of these organizations, and again, I've I've provided knowledge sharing for some of these institutions that do due diligence for the Goldman Sachs, the mutual funds, the hedge funds, the private equity firms, and they'll call up a guy like me or anybody in our community and say, hey, we have a very specific conversation that we want you to have with this investment bank or this management consulting firm because they need information because they're putting together um, a solution for a big client. Now, like in those instances, like I would get paid $400 to $1,000 an hour to get on the phone with these investment bankers and give this information. They're doing this in the developing world with brilliant scientists and paying them little to nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So part of like the Holden Fitzgerald model is, is how do we teach some scientists to be really good at being consultants, advisors, and, and, and managers so that they can take the, the scientific skills that are necessary to be able to solve these problems, but also create value for themselves so that that so that they know what, what's coming out of their mouth and what the value of that is, right? So a lot of times, if you if you ask our chief development officer, most of his job is to get our associate directors to a place where they can communicate the value of what they know to folks in their um, in their market, so that they can develop a consulting practice that that is their own. Because the number one thing that I get from folks that come and want to talk to us about working with us in some capacity is um, the grants the, the grants done. You know, the program's over, right? Like, you know, I, I was an, I was an external consultant for so and so for the last six months, and now that's over. That's always the case. And I said, well, what if you had been building? your expertise and your influence within your own market by yourself. Could you have created your own consulting practice and had something that's sustainable? So you don't have to, you don't have to go back to that. It's the same mindset as the way in which we talk to a hospital or health center in sub-Saharan Africa is the same mindset that we're having when we're talking about procurement strategy with in the Caribbean or what the work that we're doing with, risk managers um, in Latin America. It's all the same. Here's a, here's a great, I'll give you a great example about um, what measures can be taken to prioritize aid effectiveness principle. Oh, well, here's a good one. Um, So I'll just give you an example. We uh, had, I, I guess I published just something simple on antimicrobial resistance a couple months ago. Then somebody reached out about an issue with black market antibiotics being um, trafficked from one country to another in Central America. And what would be the strategy to be able to fix that, right? Because that's creating an AMR issue. Okay, well, there's all of the things that we kind of talked about in our Holden Fitzgerald's AMR stewardship framework. But my first answer was, give free antibiotics to all of the people that would be forced to buy antibiotics on the black market. Okay. So, and you guys are over here writing a 50 page white paper so yeah. that some journal will pick it up.
0: Yeah. Solve and the problem.
1: Just right, solve, like solve the problem. Another, another, another common <laughs> another, sense. One-on-one. Right. It's another one. solve here's, the a, here's another, here's another one as you'll get a kick out of this one. We're gonna do a public health campaign on vector-borne disease. Now, granted in this country, this vector-borne disease issue is coming from unclean drinking water. And so we're gonna take all of the money that we could be using to create clean filtration systems so that the people have clean drinking water so they don't get vector-borne disease. What we're gonna do is we're gonna spend that money on a campaign to educate people about the fact that they're drinking unclean water that's giving them vector-borne disease and all the strategies that they need to take not to get sick. And I said, here's the deal. Number one, not participating, have a nice day. Come up, multiply the number that you're going to give a firm to do this public health campaign, multiply that by 20. And why don't you just give your people clean water? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a European Union nation, lots of money. I'm mean, sit, sit, sitting on stacks of gold, but that's not the point because, well, then we can't say that we're doing this and blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the thing. You want to talk about upward mobility. You want to talk about economic stability. You can take that money and have, and, and actually give it out as loans, free interest-free loans to people that can build and produce the types of equipment that's necessary so now your people are actually building small businesses to feed their families so not are, not only are you creating a tax space and you are creating upward mobility for families in your small island nation but you're actually solving the vector born disease issue at the exact same time we don't think like that but epit- you don't think like that all the time we we want to we want to take this to the we want we want we want to create curriculum around it and teach it to someone for $80,000 a year at Harvard and no offense to the Harvard people. I mean, we need, we need our Harvard people out. We need our Harvard public health people out there. So, but, but this is my point. This is not an, we don't, this is not an Ivy league, so, uh, an Ivy league problem or solution. This is simply, we don't have enough trees. So we're going to plant trees. We don't have enough water. So clean waters. So we're going to figure out clean water. Problem is, that's not where the money's going. And it's not sexy to fund those things, which I actually I think one of the questions that you posed, Michael, that I want to address before we we finish up is. When when you look at foreign aid, it, it is always specific to the context of what what that foreign aid organization or what that need na- that nation needs, what they need to feel good about. Right. Like what uh, we gave this money so, and then we could tell everybody that we gave this money, right? So what is it going to be? In many cases, it's infectious disease. I remember this was about a year and a half ago when I was having a conversation with a friend that is a head of a surgical division of a very well-known organization called the WHO. And he said, well, you know, it's, it's sexy to fund infectious disease, right? So we have the big boys, HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, And we had our 20 neglected tropical diseases, all very important things to deal with. So I'm not diminishing it. But what I'm suggesting is, is that they're not investing it in a way so that they're creating infrastructure to deal with what's going to happen in opportunistic disease and non-communicable disease. And so they're building infrastructures for this specific thing because the funds are restricted and they're not being able to create long-term usage which is creating a lack of sufficiency, self sufficiency, sustainability, and ultimately, it's a bleed, waste, and leak of the very funds that they're giving. But the organization can do that. I see it all the time here in the U.S., especially in HIV/AIDS institute. You know, institutions that are literally hijacking Ryan White and 340B drug pricing program dollars uh, for for the sake of some type of national, uh, not-for-profit campaign to 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 create awareness. When the reality is, is that what these people need is transportation, free medication, education, opportunity for job training. Mm-hmm. So again, I'm I get fired up about it because at the end of the day, what you want to fund isn't what the need is. And so there isn't cultural context. So I'm, so we're taking, you know, the, the white, in many cases, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant or the Eurocentric or the neocolonialism or liberalism view of what somebody needs. Well, I can tell you what happens in all of that is exactly what happened with the Gates Foundation when they said, you know what? The best way for us to make markets in the African continent is to get into the malaria business. don't really give a shit about whether or not people yeah. now Melinda Gates, 100 percent. But think about the strategy. The strategy is we're going to make markets and we are going to give away malaria nets. And then people got the malaria nets. And because you're talking about a low-income community that needed nets to be able to fish, they used those malaria nets to fish with and killed the fish and poisoned their people. And so there was negative consequences. So a lot of times is when I say we don't have the business of just showing up and being a savior because we have no, we have really have no freaking clue what the real need is. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Right. Because what, what, what needed to happen is we're going to give interest free. We're going to give money to institutions that can build these nets to create a workforce around this business. We're not going to just randomly give governments money so that then we can somehow monopolize their market. And it's just really unfortunate. The African continent is, The bread is the bread. You know, I'm I'm a Jew. And so most Jews would say Jerusalem is the center of the world. It is not the breadbasket of the world is Africa. If you go back millions of years, we were we were all that's where that's where we all came from. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it today is representative of what we've done over the last 500 or 1000 years to absolutely destroy the natural resources, the skill set and all of those types of things. And we're doing it in South. It's happening in Southeast Asia. It's happening in the Caribbean, and it's all coming from one place, right? If I if I could pick a couple epicenters in the world of where uh, private equity, hedge fund, uh, management consult consulting firms exist, they are there to attack, and they will do it with beautiful, um, beautiful, elegant communication with lots of money. Um, it's no different than greenwashing, right?
0: What what about where do you see like China coming in with Africa? I know they've been really big in the last fifteen years, um, using interesting strategy. I don't want to get off topic, but I think
1: there might be a connection. Yeah, my good my good friend Fidel would eat this one up because you're really talking about BRICS. So you're talking about the relationship between Africa, in you know India, uh, Russia, China. Um, I don't wanna get too much into this, but this is what I will say is that when you leave a vacuum, right? The uh, leave a vacuum uh, where you have demonstrated as a nation, that you are there to take whatever you want and make sure the rest of the world doesn't really think that's what's happening. Then you are going to find alliances, excuse me, too much coffee. You're going to find alliances and you're going to endorse and you're going to enable alliances that happen that ultimately will not be in the not being in your best interest. So here's the thing: I am n- not someone that's pro Russia, right? I think <laughs> I think I think most people will back me up on that one. Um, I think that China is doing exactly what. Um, I think G is doing exactly what he was brought up to do and found himself in a place where he was trying to, I mean, think about, you have to go back and, and understand his his history um, and how he grew up and how he promised himself that he would rise up and, and ultimately be in a position of power and do better for his people. So we have to have some context, regardless if you, you care about, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many human rights violations going on in so many parts of, of the world that it's, it's hard to just tag it at one because mm-hmm. what by the time we blame one nation that the United States has been the bashing for years, all of a sudden the United States is doing the exact same thing in another part of the world. So a lot of times that's where the conversation um, hits. But if you look at China coming to the aid of Africa or you look at Russia coming to the aid of Africa, I would say don't be surprised because quite frankly, the United States has enabled those types of relationships because all Russia and China have to do is do it. Do it better. Now, it, will they actually do it better? I don't think so. I think it's, it creates some of the same problems that we have in the United States and our relationship with African countries. And I hope that in most cases, the United States as a government um, can say that they're doing it better, right? Than maybe countries that have some real, real massive human rights issues. Um, But again, think about the Middle East and the human rights issues that are there and Mm -hmm. the types of relationships that we have with them simply for the sake of oil. Uh, So we're willing to stand up when it's convenient. We're not willing to stand up um, when it's necessary. And so I don't have a whole lot to say on the China, Africa or Russian, the BRICS relationship, other than I I did write, I did write a little commentary about it, I think about a month ago. Um, And I think that they are going to, if they do it the right way and they continue to invest in each other, which they may or may not, regardless of what we believe about their principles and the way in which they treat their people, they, they, could really have um, a strong impact on the global economy um, and do some significant damage to U.S. currency and U.S.'s um, influence in the world. Uh, It just seems like
0: with you kind of um, validating some thought that I had with the China, just that there's such a opportunity for the control global control. Like, I guess what you're saying with those, with those influences, I know it's kind of out of side of the scope of this talk and we're kind of coming towards the end. It just got me thinking with what we were, what you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, am not an expert on that. Uh, yeah. I, I, China's well, yeah. got rights violations. Russia's Russia's a really piece of piece of work and uh, mm-hmm. we need Ukraine to be successful Um, And we need uh, the African continent to be completely autonomous so that they can take care of their people in the best way possible. And we Mm -hmm. need to their African continent to not be a place of continuous extraction. And we need to make sure that those that are a part of the heritage of colonialism do not continue to perpetuate it in the way in which they are doing business, the way in which they think they're helping people. Because in many cases, the way, when we, even when we think we're helping people, we're not, we're actually, we're actually harming. Um, and so we have to be very uh, reflective of mm-hmm. that and make sure that we are empowering, um, being an ally, mm-hmm. uh, being a point of reference, being supportive um, and not using it as a, as a way to take captive Um my friend Farzine says, you you know, in many cases, you're just talking about evolved. You know, a lot of times, you know, li- liberals is in many cases, you know, liberalism in many cases, as far as the United States is concerned, is just evolved capitalism. Mm-hmm. It isn't a new way. Um, and so, if we're going to pull back from a healthcare perspective, you know, I just believe that healthcare is a utility. I believe in socialized medicine. There really, truly, isn't pure socialized medical system. Uh, in the world. Mm-hmm. I love the Norwegian model. Um, I love the Finnish model. I think Taiwan, I think Switzerland does it really well. I think that the UK and Canada is struggling, um, but they're struggling for some of the same reasons that the U- US healthcare system is. And so again, I think it's just a matter of kind of firing up the conversation about how are we going to do business um, Primarily US corporations are going to do business, not just in the African continent or in the Caribbean or in Latin America or Southeast Asia, but like in our backyard. Like what is our motive going to be? How are we going to help people and feel good about it? And I ask myself that on a daily basis because for as quickly as I might be doing the right thing and the businesses might be headed, the operations might be headed in the, the right direction. I have to keep, you know, the business. And what we're doing in healthcare, there has to be a clear delineation between the two. We gotta keep the doors open, pay the bills, collect the money, do all the things that we do, whether it's globally or in the United States. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to our clinicians, when it comes to deploying resources, taking care of babies, taking care of vulnerable Mm -hmm. and marginalized populations, taking care of people that have need, We have to keep that separate. The monetization of patients Mm -hmm. needs to stay out of our mouths. Mm -hmm. And I just encourage people to find that space where they can be successful and keep the door open and understand that your models of care, you're going the wrong direction as soon as you ask yourself whether you can scale it, right? And the digital health world is a good example of that right now because we've seen a lot of money raised and we've seen a lot of money lost. <laughs> in fact, one of the company one of the companies here in Mass across the Charles River from me in Boston, they just shuttered. Mm. And the executives have already started a venture capital firm with all of the money that apparently they made with an unsuccessful business or prior to their unsuccessful business, they've started a new venture firm to help digital health firms. But remember, they just tanked a digital health firm. And now they've started a venture capital firm to help digital health firms be successful.
0: Sounds like the guy on TV selling real estate, right? Selling the real estate tapes.
1: (laughs) Yep. uh, He's got lots of money, but doesn't own any homes. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Wow. But I I know we're coming towards the end. Dr. Ryan, Paul, it's been awesome having you on. Is there any other things you want to touch on? Any other things that I don't, I just don't want to miss out while
1: we're here. So what I would, what I would encourage, you know, we didn't really get into this, but I think that it does have to do with how do we decolonize um, global public health and what is our, what is my personal role when I, when I look at it, I spend a lot of time talking about degrowth, which, um, I know that you're familiar with because obviously being in planetary health and being an environmentalist is something that's really important. Um, I wrote this kind of musing, I don't know, it was probably, it was probably about a year ago Um and it was really about this idea that what would it look like if we we started to look at global and public health from a degrowth lens, that we could scale down, right? That we could use less, that the ultimate health and well-being recipe was something that came out of this idea of degrowth, Um And I want to just share it with your viewers. I'm going to pull it up, if you don't mind, and then we can- Yeah, yeah, no, please Uh, do. I might not even have it on here. I don't know if you're
0: seeing at the bottom where it says percent. You should,
1: and I'll put a note, degrowth- Oh yeah, that's that's fine. I know I just wrote this and I like to share it because I think that I don't know, it's it speaks it speaks to me. It's it's a uh, it says it's true that degrowth and public health approaches or global public health approaches differ, but both share common values. The former proposes a path for transformation intended to halt the destruction of life supporting systems by infinite economic growth. The latter aims to maximize health and well-being while reducing health inequities using strategies ranging from health protection to health promotion. In various jurisdictions, public health is legally mandated to act when population health is threatened. Some jurisdictions have also adopted a health in all policies. Though public health has leadership for climate change and health adaptation planning, decisions and efforts and mitigation strategies are often left to the economic and environmental sectors. Several tools such as health impact assessments Healthy public policy development and socioeconomic determinants of health frameworks are often ignored. We must utilize a critical public health lens, theoretical analysis and empirical evidence to discuss the barriers and facilitators to achieve synergy between public health and a degrowth perspective. Public health has an ethical and legal duty to lead debates around sustainable living and to unequivocally use its leverage to support degrowth ideas. As long as public health networks are embedded in corporate welfare bodies, and this is what we're talking about when we talk about unmasking postmodern colonialism and global public health, corporate welfare bodies that are extracting from every community across the globe, not just in developing and emerging markets. The transformation toward degrowth to the extent required from one of the biggest challenges of our time is to transition to a degrowth society. Degrowth means embracing sufficiency for all rather than access for a few. And culturally, it means imagining a good life beyond consumerism. This could be hard for people conditioned living in a wealthy society, us in the United States. For a degrowth movement to emerge, we need new myths, we need new stories, we need new hopes and dreams, and we need new conceptions of prosperity. Then and only then can a new and equitable healthcare, system, and society emerge. Wow, I love that.
0: Uh, such a, a mind shift. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, that with us uh, at the very end as we're kind of uh, simmering, simmering down and getting ready um, to transition out of here. And uh, it's been awesome having you on and uh, just sharing with us. This has really been a true Delight, uh, Dr. Ryan, Paul, what a great journey.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me uh, run my mouth a little bit.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that's why I have it on for people way smarter than me that can share, uh, and, and and I learn every time a lot. Uh, learn a lot and ask a lot more questions. So we're gonna end with our outro. Friends, it has been a great journey today on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Follow us for more on Planetary Health First, Mars Next. Until next time, peace be with you.